Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to episode 70 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tian Nduyeb and this week in full BBC pay transparency for the past year I can admit I have earned £500 from the BBC as well as two egg mayonnaise sandwiches, uh, just little triangles not full size, eight cups of tea and when no one was looking I stuck three bottles of water and a Diet Coke into my bag for the journey home because god damn it I've paid my licence fee so I'm entitled to it because that's how straw man arguments work nowadays. Yes, Parliament has broken up for the summer, but instead of MPs getting up to summer larks, climbing trees, having a go on rope swings, frolicking in fields of wheat with or without consent, everyone instead has been up in arms about certain BBC presenters earning more than the Prime Minister. Yeah, how dare people who spent years flawlessly entertaining the masses earn more than someone who spent £143 million on an election that didn't go as planned and then another £1 billion to be best friends with people who are adamantly pro-life but you tell them some bread and wine is a dude's flesh and blood and they'll jump to consume it. The BBC's new Royal Charter terms demand that they revealed the pay of all their stars earning more than £150,000 a year. And it has revealed a massive gender pay gap between top male and female celebrities. As a result, the BBC might be forced to lower male celebrities' pay because, as we all know, that is the best way to tackle inequality, by punishing everyone. What's that? Some people are wrongly imprisoned and tortured? Well, we can't have that. I guess we'll just have to wrongly imprison and torture everyone for equality. Meanwhile, the last week of politics news was filled with talks of a replacement for Prime Minister and one part authoritarian to three parts that feeling when you wake up ten minutes before your alarm goes off, Theresa May. The current front-runner for the job is David Davis, you know, the Brexit secretary and the man who probably read the full story of Icarus and then came to the conclusion that he could probably make his own wings out of newspaper and sticky tape and be fine. Most polls asking people who the new Conservative Party leader and Prime Minister should be actually have don't know in the lead way ahead of Davis. Though to be fair, don't know is possibly a very apt nickname for David Davis. Isn't it weird that rather than a weak Prime Minister who hasn't a clue what she's doing and lacks authority, we'd prefer one who also has all those issues but doesn't even have the awareness to realise it. Theresa May has told the Conservative Party to stop leaking stories about each other and, as she put it, backbiting. Presumably because with most of the Cabinet lacking spines, it could cause serious damage. She also told them to go away and have a proper break over summer, as if things weren't broken enough at home already. May herself has gone away to Switzerland again, as presumably that seems an apt place for anyone who spent the past few months planning their own political death. 
Disgraced MP and Constantina gerbil Liam Fox is taking his proper break in the US, where he's currently discussing a trade deal for a post-Brexit Britain, though we aren't entirely sure if he's there for a trade deal with the US or Russia. This comes after Liam Fox has insisted that the UK can survive after Brexit. Yes, survive. He used that word. Because as we all know, everyone voted not for the country to thrive post-Brexit, but instead with dreams of a shipwrecked nation surrounded by corpses of previously thriving national industries and only a basketball with a face on it to talk to. Yes, Liam, it sounds great. Hey, at least we should get a cheap deal on the basketball thanks to disgraced Fox's deals with the US. Speaking of the US, Press Secretary and Haunted Baked Bean Sean Spicer announced his resignation from his White House post on Friday, prompting many to be unsure as to whether that meant he was really resigning or not. Spicer resigned due to Anthony Scaramucci, a New York financier and villain in The Man with the Golden Gun, getting a job as communications director. This is mainly because Scaramucci's investments with both Trump's rivals in the election and Russian investment banks don't really help Trump's attempts to clear his name in concern of his connections to Russia. Hiring Scaramucci as communications director is very similar to Donald just sending a telegram to every journalist individually in Russian announcing his planned fourth marriage to Putin. Still, with Spicer's record of fuck-ups and bullshitting, at least he's ended his career by delivering some actual good news, that of him leaving. Meanwhile, US President and Foghorn Leghorn's inflated twin, Donald Trump, has changed his slogan from drain the swamp to drain the sewer, which is essentially just meaning drain a drain. While it is a paradox, draining the sewer does actually fit a man who is so constantly and endlessly draining he even drains drains. With any luck, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles will start some official protests soon, though on the other hand that could cause even more weird Pizzagate allegations. And lastly, leader of the House of Commons and mother Andrea Leadsom referred to Jane Austen as Britain's greatest living author, despite this year being the 200th anniversary of Austen's death. Still, Leadsom is all about bonfires of regulation, so maybe she's just keen to remove all regulations that mean you're dead once you die. This would of course fit with her views on reducing air pollution and farming exports once we Brexit. Labour leader and captain of the Pequod, Jeremy Corbyn, has again insisted the UK can't stay part of the single market post-Brexit and that immigration would be managed on the basis of economic needs and skills required, prompting many to wonder if we'll be giving free visas to as many competent European politicians as possible. And Liberal Democrat and arch-enemy of the Smurfs, Sir Vince Cable, has been elected new leader of the party after no one else at all ran against him. Now all he has to do is hope all the other parties stand down next election and he should be in number 10 in a jiffy. And here we are. Hello. Episode bloody 70 and the very last show before the summer break. You're all no doubt getting ready for holidays, uh, weeks and weeks of stressful daily attempts to keep bored children entertained. Or perhaps just working the same as always, but in more uncomfortable weather than normal with more work to do because the rest of your office has all booked time off. I, however, am going to be spending my August at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, hence this wee podcast break. Uh, I'm just practising my Scottish there. And uh, I'm going to be performing my new show at the Fringe every day from the 5th of August to the 27th of August at the Waverley Bar on the Free Fringe at 2.30pm in the afternoon, but not the 15th or the 19th. Um, You're all going to be coming, right? You're all coming? Of course you are. Brilliant. Good. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a bit much doing this podcast and that new show all at once. So, Parpol Bro is going to be on hiatus until some point in September. But it is fine, right? Because judging by the past year or so, nothing is going to happen over summer anyway. 
Yeah? I mean, clearly, it's just going to be completely and utterly dead. Yeah? I am keeping all things crossed. Anyway, a couple of things before we delve into this week's show. Uh, firstly, even though this podcast is on a break, I have recently guested on two podcasts that are going to be out in the next few weeks. Uh, the first is Live at the Backyard Comedy Club, where I had a lovely chat with comedian Dave Whitney and Chris Anastasi. Um, it's just... Uh, an unfiltered chat really for about an hour and a half it was really good fun uh, there is an unnecessary and surprisingly not explosive amount of chat about Michael Bay so do look out for that uh, and then if you'd like to hear me talking about snails snakes and sharks of course you would why wouldn't you I'm going to be on comedian Ryan Dalton's Into the Wild podcast uh, also with comedian and animal expert Simon Watt uh, and both of those should be out over the summer so do check those out if you are missing my dulcet tones in your ears um, they were a lot of fun to record so it should be good then uh, the only other bit of admin really uh, um, apart from please, please, please come and see my Edinburgh show, please, 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 please don't make me shout at an empty room. Um, it's finally got an ending and it's making sense. Uh, and also, I should say, I've got two more previews before the fringe. Uh, firstly, at Massam Town Hall. I've been told it's Massam, not Masham. I've been told 400 times on Twitter, so Massam. Um, if you're listening to this on Tuesday like a proper champ, well done, eager beaver, uh, then it is tonight. So quick haste, uh, I will be there. Quick haste, that pretty much means quick, quick, doesn't it? Or haste haste. It's like drain. It's my, like my drain the sewer. I'm just going to say that all the time. Um, um, so uh, it's at Massam on Tuesday. If you're listening to this on Tuesday, it's tonight at the Town Hall with uh, Beck Hill. That's going to be great. And then I'm at the Ballam Free Fringe on Saturday, which I'm on at 10 past 7 p.m. Uh, and that's at the Bedford in Ballam. But it is a whole weekend of free Edinburgh previews from Friday through to the Sunday. And all donations that people give are going to the Grenfell Towers Legal Fund. Um, so do check out ballamfreefringe.com and come along to my show, but also any of the shows on Friday, Saturday or Sunday, because it can be brilliant fun. So apart from that, um, thank you for listening to this show as always there is going to be at least five weeks before the next partly political broadcast podcast after this one so if you've missed any or you started listening late then you'll have time to catch up and see how much stuff i was wrong about at the time um, also five weeks leaves you loads and loads of time to tell every single other person you know to subscribe and listen already for episode 71 in the autumn uh, it gives you time to put a review of this show on itunes or stitcher and say lots of lovely things about it and for you to donate to the patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro or ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro or even if you're going to be then Fringe, come up to me and hand me a donation with the phrase sorry I ran out of brown envelopes all of that would be very much appreciated but mostly please just make sure that you stay subscribed to this show I have a terrible tendency when I forget to listen to a podcast for a while of just unsubscribing because I'm an arsehole don't be like me use me as the example of what you shouldn't be I'm an awful person um, according to the stats yeah I've got stats check it uh, most of you uh, most of you lot are in the UK and then there's a good chunk of you in the US and then there's 77 of you in Norway hi hi uh, 10 of you in Korea so Anyong to you I think that's how you say it and uh, holla to the one listener flying the flag for PPB in Chile I uh, hope you're doing or I don't really know what happens in Chile um, but what I would like to say is that when this show returns I would love to do more interviews with people on global politics so if you're one of the many listeners listening to this somewhere global according to the stats I've got stats um, yeah and that's global by the way so not any of you astronaut listeners you lot can fuck right off um, any of you around the world if you want to recommend someone for me to interview about politics nearer to you uh, so that I can do a bit more global stuff then please do drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com So, 
to <clears throat> go out on a high. Uh, on today's show, I'm interviewing Jason Reed at Leap UK about the government's new drug strategy. Do you see what I did there? Go out on a high? Boom. Um, there is also a bonus mini interview on this week's show with several-time podcast Ian Dunt on where we are with Brexit now. Spoiler, it's really hard to tell where you are when your vision is so forcibly blinkered. Um, I'm also going to be looking at BBC Pay and mainly wishing it was all mine. But before all of that, there is, as there always ever is, this. In one of those stories that feels like it could be an analogy for the entire country right now, the UK government is set to spend an awful lot of money on warplanes that are severely flawed. I feel like that could become Britain's official national motto. Britain, forever splashing cash on utter trash. The F-35 Lightning II, much like its name, is a bit of a flush in the pan, in that it's a jet that looks real fancy with its ability to transmit data to other aircraft without giving away its location, but once you realise that none of the UK's other aircraft or ships are advanced enough to communicate with it, it's a bit like hiring HAL 9000 to work on a project with a bunch of broken speaking spells and a mouse wrapped in tinfoil. The UK's main aircraft carrier has Wi-Fi that's more shitty than most houses and the jets themselves overheat, manoeuvre badly and a lot of experts have made comments about the F-35s that make them sound like you'd have more luck with a fleet of woodlouse manned paper aeroplanes. Would they be woodlouse manned or would they be woodlouse woodlouse? There's a question for you. Anyway, so it's lucky that the UK have only ordered 138 units at a cost of over £150 million each, eh? I mean, especially as defence cuts mean all the other defence vehicles or systems they have won't work with them. Still, Defence Secretary and man who could be any other male Conservative MP at all, I mean, seriously, just look at him, Michael Fallon, defended those jet purchases because that seems to be what the Defence Secretary does now. No, not defend the country from possible attack, just defend his own government from everyone pointing out how shit they are. Fallon said that the F-35s immeasurably improve our situational awareness. Sure, mate. I suggest a better way to improve your situational awareness is to take your head out of your ass, look around and realise it's best not to spend a lot of money on what will very quickly be the world's most expensive scrap heap. I'm not saying it's on purpose that the government announced their plan to rise the state pension age seven years earlier than planned in the same week it's been announced that life expectancy has stalled since 2010. It just seems more convenient than your local shop. Not my local shop, obviously. It's a Tesco Express and it's barely got any space to move anywhere, let alone ever having anything in it that you ever need. Every little helps. Very little help more like sorry, that pension changes that are going to come in mean that people born between 1970 and 1978 are now going to have to wait a whole extra year than expected before they retire at 68. Work and Pension Secretary and the man with a name that makes it constantly and aptly sound like you're vomiting when you mention him, David Gork, said that this would create fairness across the generations, by which he presumably meant it would be more equal if everyone up to 68 is overworked, broke and struggling together. This is going to affect more than 7 million people currently in their 30s and 40s who haven't had the same access to pension schemes as their parents did and are now, because of this change, uh, all about to lose around £9,800 each. A review by the former director of the Confederation of British Industry recommended that the pension age was accelerated in order to keep the cost of a state pension affordable. But as life expectancy has now reportedly stalled, I suppose there's nothing more affordable than not having to give anyone a pension because they've died of overworking before they get there. Do you like tweeting MPs to tell them what utter bell jars they are? Me too! Well, sadly, that may soon be coming to an end and you're just going to have to return to shouting at the TV or at them in hustings in real life instead. MPs have spoken out about the abuse that they received during the election campaigns. Uh, That's online, not from each other and the press, as apparently that's just standard. 
Various MPs had said that they've received racist and sexist abuse online, which is really not okay, and I saw quite a lot of it at the time. And now the Independent Committee of Standards in Public Life are looking into whether existing laws to counter intimidation are still fit for purpose. A study by the University of Sheffield and BuzzFeed of over 800,000 tweets during the election campaign found that Jeremy Corbyn received the most abuse online, followed by Theresa May and then condom filled with porridge Boris Johnson. Oh, sorry. Wait, I'm doing it, aren't I? I'm doing it right now. Oh, is this my fault? It also appeared that male politicians received far more abuse than female politicians, with the top insult to male MPs being the classic fuck off, probably said like that. But it was also found that abuse of female candidates was more gendered and specifically sexist, with the top insult to them being kill, which is far more sinister. This is a really hard thing to tackle, as already a suggestion has been made to ban online anonymity. And while your first thought would be great, thinking that means people called Kev, followed by a series of numbers who only tweet racist tripe and have a picture of the Union Jack as their avatar, that means they can be dealt with. It would also knock out accounts such as the secret barrister or people who can whistleblow facts about their industry, or in fact my wife at Pro Wrestling, who anonymously tweets sexist casting calls. While I agree that sexist, racist and death threat based abuse must be clamped down on, I sort of feel like that's up to the sites themselves. And I really think, in fact, living in a democracy also means that I should be able to tweet fuck off to Boris Johnson whenever I like. Still, if worse comes to worse, and there is some sort of rule in place to make them really shielded from any sort of abuse and criticism, then we're just going to have to get inventive. For example, try some of these. Oi, Boris, you useless windsock full of blamange, you hairy sandbag of disappointment, you self-hating stupid potato. See, it's not that hard at all. We're already deep into festival season and there's every chance you've already gurned your mush off on trippy sweets while jumping your stompers silly to the sounds of electro spunk. Or something like that, I'm not really down with the kids. What I mean is Britain has been named the drugs capital of Europe a few times now, which is either a depressing statistic or a great one if you've run out of ideas of other things we'll be able to export post-Brexit. Actually, though, the amount of Brits taking illegal drugs is down 10% on the year before, but somehow the amount of deaths from drugs misuse has risen, with increasing problems from legal high use in prison. Especially a drug called Spice, which is causing havoc amongst inmates, despite many married couples saying it's what's missing from their lives. Sorry. And the fact is, quite a lot of people in the UK do still take drugs, and with this sort of government in charge, you kind of wonder if it's just the easiest way to keep any sort of notion of happiness. So, the government have announced a new drug strategy, and to sum it up, if it wasn't about tackling illegal drugs, you'd wonder what they were on when they wrote it, as it appears to ignore any advice about how to actually deal with issues of misuse. So, this week, I spoke to Jason Reed, the Executive Director of Leap UK, or Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and host of the brilliant Stop and Search podcast. Leap campaigned for drug law reform, and I thought it'd be useful to ask Jason just what's wrong with the new drug strategy, how drugs laws in the UK should be reformed, and why are there always records of misuse and not records of people using them properly and having a lovely time thrusting their glow ones to a melodic wump-lift hog beat synth jam on a weekend. OK, I didn't ask the last one, but hey, we had a very good and very informative chat indeed. So, here is Jason. Hey, Jason. Um, thanks tons for speaking with me today. First up, before anything else, um, can you tell me about what Leap UK is and what it is that you do? Sure. And thanks for having us on the show. I mean, I'm a brilliant listener to this. I think what you're doing is fantastic. And what we do at Leap and um, Leap UK is we're an international band of police, military, uh, MI5, you name it. Anybody that's in the forces, there to protect society. They've been on the front lines. They've seen what happens in the, in the drug war, as we say in quotation marks. And 
what you find is that our drug laws aren't necessarily protecting us how modern society thinks they should be. So what Leap UK do from a position of law enforcement chief constables and undercover detectives and, you know, some pretty sexy tales out there that they're here to say, actually, our drug laws don't work. You might want to reassess these because um, your family in harm's way in quite a few different ways that you're not even aware of yet. So let's just have a conversation. Let's be reasoned about this. Look at the evidence. Uh, let's just be boring and be quite clinical and just make some changes based on the available evidence. They're by experts. There's that word, experts. And just do something about this and for the sake of health and community well-being. And, I mean, you know, what a crazy idea that people actually want fact-based work and fact-based results. What, what a nuts idea in the world it's that we live in. I know. What, what's going on? And how many how many are, are there in, in Leap UK, then? How many people from across those kind of fields of work? It's actually really tricky to calculate because they started in America in 2002 and their list just grew and grew and grew. And then chapters emerged around the world. So um, Leap UK came along when... Basically, when I decided to volunteer, I'm not law enforcement myself, but I've just decided that I'm involved in this as a, as a kind of quasi-journalistic capacity. I was writing for the Huffington Post and this, that and the other. So I wanted to do more to get involved and saw that there was this really prolific voice out there of ex-law enforcement and military that were wanting to do something about drug laws. And because I'm into interesting promotion, my background is essentially entertainment promotion. You know, it's the only way I can help out. And from there, I'm rather stupidly, uh, they uh, elected me as the executive director of the League UK, which was a huge honour because they uh, they almost broke their own laws to do it because um, by right, someone with a law enforcement or military background should hold that position, but because I was already knowledgeable and up to speed, they entrusted me with it, which I can't thank them enough for doing. And then from there, we just strategised, and I had some people come along into the Elite UK chapter, which really took it off. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of Neil Woods now, my colleague and friend and chairman of Elite UK. Uh, He is a former undercover detective, and oh my goodness, you would not believe the stories he's got. In fact, I mean, cheap plug, but if you read Good Cop, Bad War, his book, your tongue would drop. I've, I've not had a single bad review, both publicly and privately, to his book. Um, it should be made into a TV series as well, so you should be able to get to see it that way. And his stories from an undercover detective that he could not be more on the front lines of, and I'm going to use this in quotation marks, the drug war. He couldn't be more on the cold face of it. So when someone like that that's seen up close and personal what the drug war does, and you might want to actually listen because, you know, this is testimony and it's pretty unique and pretty uh, wrapped in gold. And our numbers are swelling. I mean, it's actually really difficult to calculate our own numbers right now because we're going through another recruitment phase because we launched in the House of Commons in 2016. We decided right. we'd been, we were going before them, but we thought we'd do something a bit more formal because it was leap year. So we thought, well, there's a bit of a gimmick. <laughs> So we got booked a, a room in the House of Commons. Uh, Paul Flynn and he, uh, helped us out on that. And we did. We launched in front of a, a, an aud- a full audience in one of the big stately rooms in Parliament in front of so many different people. And lots of them were MPs that really took an interest in what we're saying. Of course, when you're faced with undercover officers, MI5, chief constables, a just giant circle of support from law enforcement perspective, saying, yeah, we really, really need to reform now. This is, you know, this is a hugely pressing issue. It just, you know, it's quite exciting how that does get people's attention. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and just to add uh, to your kind of uh, plug of, of Neil's book, um, I was going to say that he's also on um, Scribius Pip's Distraction Pieces podcast, uh, which any of the listeners, uh, if you haven't checked that one out with Neil Woods, it is absolutely fascinating, a really fascinating listen. Um, so just bearing in mind then that you said that, obviously, um, that, you know, you work with people that are on the, the front line, Leap UK, people that have dealt uh, in law enforcement areas with drugs, know the facts, Um how do you feel about the new uh, drug strategy that the government unveiled this past week? Does it sound like they've listened to anybody that knows anything? <laughs> right, there's going to be a bit of a tumbleweed at this point because <laughs> my, my dignified silence needs to come across. But <laughs> no, it Should was. Should we do sound effects? We... <laughs> oh, please do. Yes. <laughs> And also just do some kind of uh, face palm sound effect if there is one that exists even. But it's just, <laughs> I can't believe just how little we progressed on that drug strategy. It was, it's been in the makings for quite a while now because they released one in 2010. And it was pretty same old, same old, focus on recovery, focus on, you know, prevention, as it's called, you know, stop people preventing drugs in the first place. It's, I mean, we're, we're child of the 80s, that just say no mentality. If anybody that's mm. slightly younger than us doesn't know what that is, it was just basically a, a campaign led by celebrities and politicians going, don't do drugs, just say no. And it was, it was pretty big at the time. We've not really progressed past that in this country. We're still anchored to that belief that prevention works, and we know that it doesn't. If you look back a few years ago uh, when the Liberal Democrats were in, in turn with the Conservatives in the coalition, there was a, a really contentious report uh, released by the Home Office, and it was many, much of it was tried to be redacted by the, the Home Office and the, and the representatives. But there was a key finding that the harshness of a country's laws doesn't correlate to the usage. So if you've got really harsh drug laws, chances are it's not going to impact on anybody's decision to use because there are so many different factors if someone uses drugs. That's really key because we've, we know from that that drug laws are meaningless. They don't actually, they're not there as a deterrent, they're not there as prevention. And what this new drug strategy does is still anchor to that same belief system that we can actually prevent people from using drugs just through harsh laws. And, and it's so nonsense. So the drug strategy hasn't progressed at all. And not only that, it didn't actually listen to anybody within it. It was an echo chamber within its own self because it thanks the ACMD, which is the Advisory Council on Misuse of Drugs. Um, some people that follow drug policy would know that because there's lots of past stories with that, which I'm sure we're going to get onto. But they thank the ACMD within it. And the ACMD made recommendations of things like safe injection facilities, so you know, little outlets on high streets where anyone that injects drugs can go there and they can safely cons consume their drugs under supervision without fear of reprisal. Their health is going to be preserved because the chance they're going to be using sterilised equipment. They're not going to overdose because of supervision. They save lives. And not only that, it cleans up the community as well because you don't tend to get the, uh, the drug debris around city streets. The ACMD recommended that quite a few times it's been completely ignored. And the ACMD are significant as well because they're an advisory body composed of scientists, people in the know, no one that's party political, just making recommendations based on health. The point I'm getting to is the drug strategy thanks them quite a bit without actually listening to a word they had to say. And that's the position that we've now got ourselves into. 
That's ridiculous. That's because I mean, I, I I remember it was only a couple of years ago when they released the psychoactive substances bill that basically was planning to make anything that had any sort of effect on the brain illegal, including chocolate and alcohol. I think were included there, or even sort of deodorant sprays, and they had to kind of pull that back because it covered far too much. And so even since then, it hasn't really. We haven't really done much. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that they've put forward. That is the bizarre thing. It, it did at one point, uh, and it was Dr. Julian Hooper that was in the house at the time, um, who's been a, a massive great proponent of drug law reform. He, he was um, looking over the, the psychoactive substance bill, which it was then, which is, is now an act, kind of unfortunately. And he, he discovered that um, you might want to look at this again, guys, because you've just... Uh, pretty much quashed the uh, the number one drug choice in the entire country of tea. And it was on there because of the kind of the, the playing fast and loose with what psychoactive substances are. And it's just, that's the point we got to. We tried to ban everything, anything that could cause some sort of disruption in the brain for whatever you, know, you want to define it as, has been banned under the NPS Act. And that surely has to show what we've got to the point of absolute fast, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, just the, the fact that this government think that people will be, you know, be able to cope with them if they can't have anything that makes them happy. That's a really depressing. <laughs> that's a really depressing. That is, that's, that's essentially what we're saying is that you've got one drug of choice and that's alcohol. Go for alcohol. Anything other than that, you're not allowed it. And of course, not everyone likes alcohol. I don't drink alcohol. I was speaking to a comedian yesterday, Chris Cochran. He doesn't drink alcohol. And there's so many people that actually, I, I'd rather go absent than have, you know. A beverage that's going to make me a bit giddy, and and that's fine. Absolutely considered absence, and you know we are thankfully getting to a point where drug use, as a general whole, whether it be alcohol, tobacco, other uh, uh, what you know, for one of the word, illicit substances, which is a really bone of contention in our language, but uh, for the sake of simplicity. <laughs> um, but the point is that you know when we got to the point where state-sanctioned alcohol is the only way that you do anything about your state of consciousness, this is a bit bizarre. If, when you think of it in terms of, of just, you know, sociological factors. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is this this drug strategy for the past week, one of the things they, they uh, have pushed in the headlines that they're really targeting are legal highs and uh, chemsex, which um, the latter, I'm really not sure how you control what people do both in their private time as well as their drug intake. That sort of feels like a really complicated area. But, but how much of an issue are legal highs which i mean for a start they're very confusingly called legal highs uh so you know I, I, is is this a real problem is this something that that they need to be tackling more than anything else well again the, the clue is in language because they were called legal highs because they were quasi legal in the sense that you could go into i don't know a pet store and you could buy millet that's legal technically. It's just it's kind of a misnomer of language. What it was actually saying is that there's a psychoactive substance on the high street which you could buy, um, which I know is a bit really picky, but it, it does make a difference to language because it wasn't a legal buy. It's just something that hadn't been regulated. And that's where in our sector we use the R word a lot, regulation. Regulation means that it's gone through specific checks, safety checks. It's there has some, you know, not every, most drugs are going to have a risk, obviously alcohol certainly has, but most people are aware of what they are, they've got some kind of inbuilt program and they know how to use it, you know, don't down a bottle of vodka because chances are you can go a bit giddy, but with things like legal highs when they come on the market, people didn't know what they were doing because they were new, they were just another way to subvert the current legislation, so 
it's a really tricky term to get to grasp with, and that's why we, we coined this kind of clunky phrase of uh, new psychoactive substance, because it just means that there are new drugs coming on the market all the time. Because you just can't stop pharmacies and, and pharmacists in different countries that are tinkering in their, you know, basically like a breaking bad basement and putting it out on the market. That's what's going on now, and you're never going to be able to subvert that. So through regulation, you can do something about it. In chemsex, it's something that's going to start coming into the more common lexicon more and more, I think, because... As you said, it's it's really quite worrying because chemsex specifically that's been singled out in the drug strategy means that we're going to go be going after one target demographic again, and that is people that are gay, lesbian, uh, LGBT, and and that's horrific when we're starting to single out specific demographics. We've done it in the past with, with race, and it's still going on with stop and search and things like that. It's very, very, very racist. It's the point. I think it's, I mean, the statistics have changed quite recently, but until, up until this term, I think it was you're eight times more likely to be stopped and searched if you're black than what you are if you're white. But the uses of drugs doesn't differentiate between any of the races. So it's inherently racist that we do things like stop and search. So if we're going to go for chemsex again, then we are going after a demographic that quite often are very considered very, very knowledgeable about their own surroundings and what goes on within their within their own communities. And this is another reason why the drug war is so, so, so destructive, because it's singled out. So what would be the... You know, because I think with, with, with the legal highs, they're talking about criminalising the sale of and criminalising uh, the, the purchase. Was it criminalising the sale or the production of, I believe it was, not the purchase? But are you saying that a better thing for all of these or a more sensible idea from the point of view of, say, Leap UK is just regulate more things, have more kind of warnings, have more understanding of what it is they do and, and, and how they will affect people? Yeah, so this is where the language is tricky because some people talk in terms of decriminalisation, some people talk in terms of legalisation, some people talk in terms of regulation, and it's they all sound the same ballpark, don't they? But, of course, decriminalisation means that you're just not going to get any kind of criminal reprisal from your possession of a drug, um, which is what Portugal, for example, have done, which I'm sure we'll speak of more later because Portugal is such a, a buzz term in, in drug policy world. Then you've got legalisation, which just basically means, again, let's have a point of sale with some legislation around it, and we can talk about that legislation. The regulation is just a step off from that, is working out the really geeky, fine print of, you know, health labels, font, stuff like that. You know, it does make a difference. When you, prime example being tobacco. It's now plain packaged, behind closed doors, and we have warning labels in there in a specific font with pictures and things like that. That's regulation, and that's regulation working because it's not impinging on anybody's decision to whether they want to smoke or not, but it's just making it that little bit more unaccessible for new smokers, for younger people, and it's a barrier there to go, actually, you might want to think about this because it has got health effects, but we're not going to stop you. We're not going to chuck you into jail for it. It's just your decision. And that's what regulation is, and that's what we can do with any substance. There's no reason you can't. And especially cannabis is the one that we're all talking about around the world now. This is being subject to many regulations. It's got in Spain, for example, there's a Spanish social club movement, which means that you get these these corporations that get together, they grow their own cannabis, they distribute it amongst themselves. It's not for profit, and and that's really taken off. And, and to the point now, we're in Catalonia, they're actually going moving stage forward and proper going for almost like full regulation in the sense yeah. of what Colorado's done, which is a commercial 
typical what you'd imagine an American uh, commercialization would look, look like, where they're now collecting $1.3 billion in revenue from their tax on cannabis alone. So something's working out there. And, and eventually, we're going to have to think in terms of what's cost effective and what's going to get some money in. It's, it's fascinating because um, I, with the, I know in the US, uh, in fact, I, not just from your uh, your podcast where I heard it on, um, but also on uh, on your Stop and Search podcast, but also I think John Oliver did a section about it in the US, how cannabis is uh, legal in the state but not federally legal in, and it's causing all sorts of issues uh, in terms of uh, the legality of, of, of selling it there, which is... But, but so many other countries do seem very progressive on drugs. And I mean, I there was a, a recent debate uh, or it came up in the news about... About the idea of pill testing in the UK um, and uh, whether I should admit this in a recording or not I, I took some pills that were pill tested at a festival in 2001 in the Czech Republic and had the best night of my life and, uh, but it seemed like such a sensible safe thing because people were taking drugs to this tent they checked them and go oh don't do that it's dangerous and then people wouldn't or hey that's brilliant have fun and they would and it, simple things like that surely are preventative rather than reactive um, and we don't seem to offer any of that here <laughs> Exactly. We've got a, a brilliant system that's now in place called uh, The Loop, um, and I recommend anybody that's going to the festival, is, uh, as we're recording this, Secret Garden Festival's going ahead, and they're at the Secret Garden Festival. Um, and what they are is a pill testing site, so you take your whatever you've got on you, whatever substance it is, and there's this, this great system as well. There's like this, all, this kind of almost bubble of decriminalisation around them, so the police aren't going to hassle you if you go there. It means that you can get your your whatever substances you've got tested to make sure it's got the right purity, to make sure it's not over pure. Because you know, it's one of the problems that we've had lately is that we've had like PMA substances which are being passed off as MDMA, uh, ecstasy, and they're just so pure that they're just you know, quite frankly, knocking people on the head. And it's it's quite concerning in just how little people know of if they've got a really really pure substance or you know, really rubbish that's I don't know mixed up with. Tic Tacs or something like that crushed up. And it's the point now where drug taking happens at festivals, surely we need to know this. Um, you can argue the merits of pills over alcohol any day of the week if you want, but chances are if you're using the right amount of MDMA and you're using the right amount of harm reduction techniques like drinking water, making sure that you don't do too much, uh, I think the loop gives a uh, advice of crash dab weight which is just you know see how you go don't just vomit all in one it saves lives and not only that it's it's uh, it's really difficult for someone in my position to say this but people are having fun out there and that is going to be one of the main driving forces of drug policies when people realize i'm not kidding myself here using these drugs there is a safer way of doing it and you know what i'm preferring this to alcohol and that i don't know we're not potentially there in that conversation in the uk but I think that all the while, I mean, you just made a really brave admission by saying that what, what you did, and it shouldn't be brave, should it? It should, you know, you're, you're speaking about a personal experience, and we need that because that's how you progress knowledge. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. We'll be back with Jason in a minute, but first who doesn't love the BBC? It is great, isn't it, with its programmes like Cash in the Attic about dosh-in-hand tax dodgers who keep all the earnings they make from selling dead relatives' belongings. Then there's EastEnders, invented by Dante as one of his images of hell, a perpetual state of chaos and terrifying existence that people watch in order to make themselves feel better because at least in their lives, something awful doesn't happen every single six minutes. Then there's the Nigel Farage show. You know that one. Uh, that's on most Thursdays and Sundays with occasional extra shows on other days where the saggy-jowled human human belch mouth farts his opinions without question to a nation despite being unqualified in everything he says it's brilliant seriously though um i do actually love the beep without attenborough's nature shows the great bants between bbc breakfast presenters and the wealth of top documentaries and dramas and children's shows and music shows and radios and lots of channels and brilliant news and endless great stuff i genuinely think my life and many others would be worse off for it there's a reason that the bbc is classed around the world as the best state broadcaster and so many of its programs are shown globally so as you might know, this week, as part of a new royal charter that began on January the 1st of this year and forms the constitutional basis of the BBC, the corporation had to publicly reveal the salaries of all of its employees earning more than £150,000 a year. This clause was put in by the last Culture Secretary, John Whittingdale, as part of a move for greater transparency over how the BBC uses its £3.7 billion licence fee income because there's nothing that helps create good TV like showing everyone exactly how you run things so they can all complain about it and tell you how they do it despite a complete lack of experience or understanding of the industry. This is pretty much how Mrs Brown's Boys happens. Do you see? Do you see what happens? The list revealed Chris Evans as the biggest earner, though I suspect part of that fee is just making sure they know where he is at all times so people don't accidentally see or hear him and can easily avoid him. Chris Evans is on a stonking 2.2 to 2.4 million pounds a year, and I should say that's Chris Evans, the radio DJ and presenter, not Chris Evans, the Avenger, because actually that probably really isn't enough to protect humanity from aliens. But yeah, 2.2 to 2.4 million a year, that is a lot. But I guess, hey, it takes talent to fuck up Top Gear, doesn't it? I mean, even grade A Bell and Jeremy Clarkson couldn't manage it. After Chris Evans uh, is Gary Lineker. Gary Lineker earns £1.7 million, then Graham Norton, Jeremy Vine, and eventually 10 down the list is the first female celebrity, Claudia Winkleman, at £450,000 a year. Now, personally, I'm always a bit funny about how anyone can justify earning quite so much money for doing anything, but the biggest issue is obviously the gender pay gap, which is really, really brutal between the top male earner and top female earner, especially as Claudia Winkleman often makes shows that are actually watchable. In fact, only a third of the 96 names revealed are women, which is awful, and Tony Hall, the head of BBC, has admitted as much. But it's not just the BBC that this is an issue for. By April next year, over 9,000 large companies are going to have to reveal data on their gender pay gaps, and a lot are not very happy about it, with only a third compiling the data by the end of May this year, as requested. 
Equal pay is different to the gender pay gap and often gets confused. And equal pay is a requirement for men and women to earn the same when doing the same job. Now, that's actually implemented in quite a lot of companies, but the gender pay gap highlights that women aren't given the same jobs as men, that there are less women in the top echelons of companies, and so therefore overall earn less. Currently, only 27% of FTSE board directors are women, which means <laughs> a lot of men are playing FTSE by themselves. <laughs> um, Lord Mervyn Davis, a former trade minister, asked the FTSE 100 businesses in 2011 to ensure that 25% of directors were women by 2015. And they did indeed manage that, which is great. But it's all kind of stalled, and it's only grown to the 27% mark in the two years since. There are currently more people called John chairing FTSE 100 boards than there are women. Although, to be fair, judging by the people I imagine chairing those sort of suit hellscapes, I'm fairly sure John is the most likely name for a man or a woman doing it, probably also with the surname John and a list of hobbies that include staring at walls and listening to Coldplay. The data report doesn't require any of the companies to do anything about their pay gaps, which is a problem, though 70% of them say they will publish a narrative that explains why it's the case, so perhaps some sort of rebalance can be addressed. On the plus side, the gender pay gap in the UK is at its lowest ever, and more women aged 16 to 64 are in employment than ever before. So perhaps, with the BBC revealing celebrities' pay and exposing its own gap, and other companies doing it publicly by next April, something may start to change. Even if it's just replacing male Johns with female Johns. With any luck, Claudia Winkleman will start to host Top Gear very soon, and I may then start to watch it for the first time ever in my life. Personally, I'm still up for Chris Evans to earn 2.2 million a year, but only if it's part of a golden handcuff contract where he promises to just stay in his home all day and never, ever leave. Fingers crossed. And now, back to Jason. I mean, it, it seems sort of to me as ever since, uh, was it 2009 that David Nutt was dismissed as a yes. government advisor? I think that was it. Sort of, uh, I mean, since then, and, and really before then as well, um, it just seems like we there hasn't been a, a lot of emphasis at all really on educating people or really looking at the, the facts. Is there anyone, uh, you know, in fact, a better question would be, why, why is it still such a taboo issue here in the UK? Why is it so focused on just decriminalise, just stop everything? from happening rather than hey if we tell people how to take things how to do things just to be careful you know that that might be a more sensible way through why, why don't why don't, what, what's wrong with us in the uk <laughs> <What's> the <problem? laughs> well, there's a question how long we got for that one <laughs> but I, I, you're absolutely right because in 2000 i was speaking to uh, david nutt last night and he he's it's we was almost making the point that with regards to drug policy, it was almost better he was fired because it meant that he could do more outside of it and he became this massive public figure and he still is. I mean, on, on the podcast, I've had, you know, quite, you know, what you could term A-list people and the one that we did repress a lot was the one that was sold out the most. He's become that kind of iconic figure and when you've got that, when you've got that audience, you can certainly project more and I've got his book right next to me, uh, Drugs Without the Hot Air. And I recommend any or anybody to buy that. And also the proceeds of that book goes to his, uh, his charitable organisation, Drug Science. So it's, it's well worth a read. And I think we're at the position now in the UK where we've got this strange dialogue where we do acknowledge drug law reform, but we just don't do it head on. So if you, if you use reasoned language and you go through reasoned arguments of, you know, for example, the drug strategy, it mentions rehabilitation, it mentions treatment, it mentions all those good things that we know work. You know, giving people self-empowerment, let's not persecute or, 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 or give them any kind of stigma which is going to hold them down. We understand that kind of position. But then if you get people onto the polarisation debate of reduce poor criminalisation or legalisation, 
if you're a certain way politically inclined, then you're going to lean towards the conservative position of, well, no, we want criminalisation because we think that deters people from use. But then if you're a bit more on the other side of the spectrum, then they tend to think in terms of, well, no, we know that regulation actually saves more lives. And that's when the polarisation then takes point. When you look at what we've done in the UK, we have actually done some drug law reform, but just not under any kind of credible uh, banner that, that looks good or, or even looks bad. Prime example being, we're now talking about safe injection facilities. Uh, and this is, is really in the echo of uh, Margaret Thatcher's era uh, of um, needle uh, exchange programs. Mm. We saw in the 80s that HIV, HIV rates were raising. Uh, and Margaret Thatcher took a, at the time an unpopular decision to go, actually, let's do some harm reduction techniques here. We, we didn't even have the term harm reduction. But she went for it. She did a needle exchange. And then sure enough, it lessened the HIV rates and we, and we contained it. That's harm reduction. And that's a form of, you know, essentially regulation. Um, and we've progressed with that thought process of how those incremental changes can have societal benefits. But what, what it, it all fails when we get into, like I said, the polarisation debates, which we saw on the back of the drug strategy this week. There was a six-hour debate in Parliament yeah, that was uh, wow, that's that, a that long... was tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was live tweeting it through the UK account, and I felt so sorry for the MPs that were in that chamber on both sides because six hours sitting in there is no easy feat. I've been in Parliament a lot, and I can tell you, six hours in there is draining. So to sit through yeah. that. That debate, I, God bless them. They, they, they really did earn their money that day. They could have done with some legal highs, get them through it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you probably know, in the in Parliament, there's no real reason that you can't go into the actual chamber completely drunk. There's no, you know, there's this kind of parliamentary rules that frown upon it, but you can do it because they've got subsidised bars in there, so they have got their legal highs and their free highs. So we got we got this position where you can have a drunk MP arguing against drug law reform, which with some of the arguments get got put across on uh, what was it Tuesday? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Some people weren't inebriated on something. We did. We, we got that typical polarisation of the Home Office Minister Sarah Newton, who I, I, I do feel sorry for. I don't think when you're in that position, you don't always agree with what you have to say. And I think that when you're a Home Office Minister representative, representative I think that you have to toe the party line, quite obviously. And she was doing that very well. And But the point was is that her was almost... I, I felt like crying at times for her because she, she came across not so great. And I'm trying to be as polite as I can here because I'm very conscious <laughs> I still have to work with politicians, so I'm not trying to criticise too much. Um, and that's the other thing is that as well, you have to be respectful in the debate because as much as it can be frustrating, you still have to work with all people. But the point is that I'm trying to make is that the, the debate was so anchored in this polarised good, bad, evil, you know, these kind of... And I think the word evil was used a few times. We're talking about drugs, you know, inanimate objects. We're, we're describing evil. So, yeah, we had uh, one side of the debate which was very much anchored in the criminalisation works, you know, let's, let's protect society from drugs, which makes perfect sense. But then when you reason it out with what's more of my position and the MPs that agree with, you know, what we're doing at Leap UK, which there is a lot. I think it outweighed, I think there was more people going for the reason, evidence-based position than there was the kind of uh, shouty rhetoric. So I think we're getting there, and I think that publicity is going to play a massive part in this now. 
Sure, sure. And, and is is there a... I mean, because you mentioned Portugal earlier, which I've seen brought up uh, quite a few times in the news lately because it was, I think, Ron Hogg mentioned it, the, the, police and cr- the Police and Crime Victims Commissioner. Is that the thing? That's his full title. Police, um, police and Crimes Commissioner, that's it. PCC. Yes, it's, it's PC, yeah. yes, it's PCC. Yeah, they've added a V in there as well. It's very confusing. I oh, think there's oh, a, Yeah, fun, I think it's Police insane. and Crime and Victim. Anyway, it doesn't... Yeah, it's not helpful for people like Going that. on Google. Um, yeah, yeah, Google. Um, but, and and he, he, he was the one, I think, brought up Portugal, I saw him on the news, because he's saying that they decriminalised all... Was it all drugs? Have they decriminalised all drugs? Or is um, there a limit? So, yeah, in Portugal, that you've got um, X amounts that you can carry, um, which will be absolutely fine under, under their, their systems. And they have what they call dissuasion boards. And um, if you get caught with over a certain amount, or even if, if the services at the, at the point of first point of contact think you've got a problem, then you get sent, sent to a dissuasion board. But you're not under any kind of um, criminal reprisal for having done so. They're just there to give you advice, to go, well, have you, have you thought about how much drugs you're using? Uh, is there anything we can do for you? This is the services that we can offer. Uh, and it's all very amicable. It's, it's treating people as people. You know, they're just having a conversation, being concerned about potential drug abuse and could, is there any way that the services can help them in a better way? Sure, because that's what I wanted to ask. Is that in terms of, uh, the, you know, in terms of how we do it in the UK, there are, you know, this is my, my personal views are that while I, uh, I think that you know, regulation was sounds a good idea. There are elements of of drug use that I think should be criminal, not drug use. Sorry, more like the drug selling or or certain ways in which drugs are obtained. Uh, there's a lot of you know, or from what I've read about uh, the the amount of harm that comes to people uh, in order to get drugs uh, to the UK. Um, so surely it's. I mean, surely it's very complicated. But, but in 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 Portugal, I assume then they've got certain limits, so that if you're carrying over a certain amount, therefore you're dealing rather than just a user, then it becomes a different matter. Is that how it works? Yeah, essentially. And I can't remember the exact limits of what they are at the moment. So I also think they fluctuate quite a lot. Um, but uh, there's the person that I, I take all my uh, Portugal readings from is a professor that, uh, from uh, Kent University, actually, which I know we both know, mm. um, Professor Alex Stevens. He's, he's an authority on this. And what he what he's very good at doing is uh, Professor Alex Stevens is making sure that I think he's actually written a paper called Portugal Fantastic Success or a Catastrophic Failure or something like that. Basically saying you could easily make the case one way or another that Portugal has really failed or you can make it as a huge success, obviously, you yeah. know just kind of mansplaining the title there. But <laughs> the, po- the point is he's making is that it's neither. It's not a huge success. It's not a massive failure. It's just gone for a reasoned approach. It's levelled out the uh, the drug use numbers. They, they had a slight drop, um, and, and in some demographics, a slight uptick. But very it, it basically flattened out so that, again, making the point that drug laws did not impact on people's use. And that's key again. You know, once more, we understand that law enforcement doesn't have any issue within people's decisions to use drugs. So then you look at in terms of what can we do to make individuals safer, what can we do to make communities safer. And the, uh, the Portugal decriminalisation system and having the, the more money going into the health just as, as just as worked. You know, I, I could bore you statistics, which I'd rather not because I'm not going <laughs> in front of me if I'm honest. But it, it, just, it just does, on, on a perfectly sensible level, it just seems to work. It does. It does sound. It's very. It's just. I think. Sort of. Uh, we're speaking to you today, and sort of following this for, for some years. It just. It just seems bizarre that we don't look at evidence and facts, as you said, right at the top, and that's what Leap UK does. Just look at 
the way, you know, I, I think every every country and everywhere in the world would require probably a different strategy depending on how people use things and what they use and, and how it affects, you know. But but to work with those who know what they're doing and just to base policies and evidence and facts surely just seems like the most sensible thing you could do, probably not just in drugs legislation, pretty much all over, <laughs> all over all policies. Yeah, and why, why wouldn't you base policy on the best available experts and advice? And and funny enough, the, the podcast I recorded last night, which I don't know when it had been released, but it was about the fear of experts based on Michael Gove's comments. Um, do we have a fear of experts? Do we? Do, are we cynical? Do we hear these people that are, these talking heads on telly? Am I, you know, am I doing it now? Just coming across as someone you know that is being very blowhard about a subject without actually knowing much about it, and it's difficult to know who to believe um, because we have got so much information being pumped out. At least in our day, in our in our day, God, I'm, we're only thirties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have like. Yeah, we had like so four on. channels, didn't we? And, and <laughs> on those four channels, you could normally work out how to trust. And we've got so much in the way of information now. Is where do you start? So it's difficult to know where to where to pick out your evidence from. But the point is, is that it exists. Um, we have peer reviewed for a reason. You know that that old archaic method of going over and getting your academic peers to to critique you. Um, and surely these work. Surely. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, it, and on that note, which is a good note to sort of uh, finish on, um, in terms of useful information and information that people should actually go and look at, um, apart from Leap UK, obviously, and your brilliant Stop and Search podcast, um, where else can you recommend that the listeners of the show um, l- look up or, or who they should follow on Twitter? Or, you know, where should they go if they want, um, you know, proper information and advice on drugs laws and legislation? Um, and I know, obviously, you mentioned Neil Woods earlier, who you should definitely... Uh, check out. I can't remember Neil's Twitter. You can probably t- tell me. <laughs> yeah, Neil's, tw- Neil's Twitter's rubbish. He's got he's got some sort of because c- he was fairly late to Twitter. He decided to go with something to replicate his nickname Woodsy, but he spelt it in some sort of weird way. I'm trying to look it up now. But um, for general information and to know how the the future term looks under a regulated system, then you've got to follow Transform Drug Policy Foundation, and they put out. Very, very, very good reports. Um, they've done one called The Blueprint, um, which is a map of how drug regulation could look. It's so concise, it's so clinical, it's so perfect. They've also done one on cannabis regulation, how that could look. Um, they've also got a, an allied organisation called Anyone's Child. And Anyone's Child are just heartbreaking, but so inspirational at the same time because they're composed of... Um, bereaved family members that have lost children, oh, uh, that, wow. have, that have had uh, the criminal justice system inter- interfere with their lives unnecessarily. Um, all of these different components to the, how the drug law affects families, uh, anyoneschild.org, they're the ones that are pushing that story across of that this really could be your family. You know, it only takes one minor indiscretion of uh, a weekend to be put behind the cells. It only takes one bad trip and you could be under an unregulated system the the uh, the next victim of the drug war so please do follow anyone's child because um i've not sold them very well but they are genuinely inspirational um also leap in america if you're if you're listening to this in america go find leap in america we've got them across germany uh canada uh, all doing well of course us at leap as well uh release uh, if you've got any trouble with 
drugs, uh, the law specifically, going to release. Um, I'll try and find their Twitter handle as well. Uh, they're there to give you guidance on stop and search laws. So if you do get, if you're out and you do get stopped, you get searched. Um, they'll give you some advice on that. They'll tell you how to handle uh, your interview process and things like that. Uh, and on Twitter, they're at release underscore drugs. Um, and I can't recommend them enough. They, they've been at the, the, the real cutting edge of drug policy reform for many years. Uh, you could do a whole story on them alone. Um, Caroline Kuhn, who used to manage the clash, she started them in the 60s because oh, yeah. a lot of a lot of their friends were getting arrested, so she started this this charitable organisation, and it's still going today, and they're still world leading. So please do follow them as well. That's a brilliant list, and uh, I think well time. This is the last podcast before the summer, so hopefully all the listeners can take all that in and research all that before they go party their faces off throughout the yes. uh, festival, festival weekend. Yeah, <laughs> and if you do, and if you do go and do that, if you do, uh, if you are a, you know recreational drug user it almost sounds weird saying that doesn't it you still in this day and age as much as i deal with it you know i still have to with my media head on have to think is is that the right terminology but yeah if if you're out there using drugs please do get involved in this you need to help us reform because we're there doing this so that we can have an inclusive conversation so please do get involved Big thanks to Jason for talking with me. Um, he can be found on Twitter at Jason Tron. And his brilliant podcast is called Stop and Search. And it's really, really worth a listen. Um, in fact, it's definitely worth a listen in September because I'm going to be a guest on it then uh, when it will be recorded live on the 19th of September in Waterstones in Islington. So you can come along. Uh, Leap UK can be found at ukleap.org and also on Twitter and Facebook too. And Jason recommended a number of other organisations and things to check out as well. So uh, do go find Culture High, which is a film on Netflix, very worth watching as is grassroots the cannabis revolution on amazon uh, and then do check out the transformed drug policy foundation who are on transformed drugs on twitter and anyone's child who are on twitter at anyone's child or online at anyone's child.org as there's a bit of a break now for this podcast there is loads and loads of time to hunt down guests for the autumn for the show but as always if you'd like me to try and interview someone in particular or a subject you'd like me to find someone to interview about please 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 do drop me a line at Bro on twitter the partly political broadcast group on facebook or partly political broadcast at gmail.com or why not come to the Edinburgh Fringe put on your own three hour long performance dance piece to a single tom tom drum beat called hey tin and here's all the people I'd like you to interview and it's highly likely I'll just scowl at you as you try to fly me in the rain yeah email is definitely easiest this week for the question of the work i asked you the owl receivers of this here show thing what job could now former white house press secretary sean spicer do next this is of course bearing in mind that he is a man whose past six months of highlights include claiming trump's inauguration crowd as bigger than obama's despite photographic evidence that hitler never used chemical weapons on his own people repeatedly tweeted his own private password and hid in some hedges by the white house in order to avoid reporters all of which to be fair made him the perfect press secretary for a president who's every moment appears to be from a sitcom like Friends, where you laugh about it at the time and then years later just realise how dangerous, vapid and narcissistic everyone was and how there was an obvious distinct lack of black people. Anyway, that was the question. What job could Sean Spicer get next? And there were loads of answers from your faces, so here are a few that I particularly liked. 
Rob Skeen says he could pull a Gideon and become an editor for CNN. To be fair, that would actually make CNN fake news, as Trump suggests, finally. Uh, Paul Gannon says, uh, London underground platform announcer, if there is any job suitable for someone who can't convey a message, it's that one. Uh, Bill Harburn says, email deleter. I don't know how you do that as a professional job. Um, well, you just turn up to people's computers and delete a load of shit. I'd, I've probably done that by accident. Um, at Gracington Co. says professional Sean Spicer. And uh, she's put in brackets, sprinkling paprika on anyone named Sean. What a lovely job that would be. Just Sean Locke trying to get on with eight out of ten cats. And then Sean Spicer sneaks up behind him. A little bit of paprika on the face. Oh, lovely. Um, at MPC1968 says uh, stand up. He has months of first class material from the White House. It's so funny that it's almost sad though, isn't it? Um, at Fluff Logic says... NRA spokesman, they're always in need of someone who can deny reality with a straight face. At Rob Thorley says he should open up a brothel. He could call it Spicer's Girls. Is that what he really, really wants? Um, At Benson Mike says it's usually LBC, isn't it? Oh, it's so sadly true. It usually is. Um, At Brosevelt, this one really made me chuckle. Um, He said, big suit model that wears progressively bigger suits. Oh, that's good. Um, At SStars75, says official White House gardener. The problem is when you do anything or just hide behind hedges constantly pretending to do stuff, might not be that great. Um, At Magic Darts, says Saturday Night Live sketches featuring him pretending to be Melissa McCarthy, pretending to be him. Jesus, that's meta. Uh, And at Bobador's gone for a similar take with take over SNL's regular White House press secretary piss take, even though it'll cost them more because he's a man. Topical. Um, At Chronicle Flask says uh, he could be a nanny. He's got plenty of experience after all. Uh, But only with man babies, not real ones. Um, At Matt Huss Comedy says if George Osborne is able to become an economics lecturer, I'm pretty sure that means Sean Spicer has got a PhD in counting people in crowds. And lastly, H Monst says he could be a new team captain on Would I Lie to You? Yeah, but then his team would lose every single time. Excellent work, all of you. Uh, More questions of the week after the summer break, so do keep your eyes out for those on the Twitter and the Facebook. And small tip, actually, uh, I shouldn't critique because you all send wonderful things, but if you're going to take part, and it's brilliant that so many of you do, please don't send me a joke that relies on a picture as it's really hard to convey on an audio podcast despite my amazing acting skills. I mean, I can totes do it. Uh, I just, you know, I just don't want to. I mean, you know, for example, here's Sean Spicer hiding behind bushes. Yeah, how good was that? I've nailed it, but you can't tell. All right, I'm off to, I'm off to hide in some bushes myself. Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! Brexit fallout! The second week of Brexit negotiations ended last week with David Davis turning up to talks looking like a work experience kid that really wishes he'd put down his choices of placement as football club or bin man instead. The main report back at the end of the four days was Michelle Barnier, the EU negotiator, saying that a fundamental divergence remained between the UK and the EU and that things couldn't be moved on until the divorce bill and EU citizens' rights in the UK were sorted out. That's right, we're only five months into the process of leaving the EU and two weeks into talks, so making absolutely no progress seems just about right, yeah? It's like being part of the Tour de France and finding three weeks in that you've still been unable to get your bike off the fucking ferry. Despite all that stalling, Secretary of State for Environment and King of the Weaselmen Michael Gove has already pledged a green Brexit, which I think is based on the colour we'll all be after the air pollution around the country gets worse. Or perhaps it's based on the colour of the silent green we'll be eating as all the trade talks fail and we end up with no food. Or maybe it's just the fact that everyone involved on the UK side of Brexit things is naive and very green about what on earth they're doing. 
Either way, Gove made a speech to the WWF, that's as in the wildlife people, not sadly the old wrestling federation, as that would mean there was a far greater chance of him being hit in the face by a chair. Michael Gove talked about making vested interests in climate change, which sounds good, but he did that just as the government had given the country's biggest polluting companies a £130 million exemption from helping to fund renewable energy technologies. Then Michael Gove promised to meet the government target of planting 11 million new trees, also sounding great, but he did that while the country is almost in a deforestation state of more trees being cut down than planted for the first time in 40 years. So either Michael Gove is going to change things around sharpish, or perhaps his green Brexit and promise to take control of the environment is the sort of hot air that means the best way Gove could benefit the planet is actually by promising to stop breathing. The other Brexit news this week is that International Trade Secretary and utter disgrace Liam the Disgrace Fox is currently in America for two days of talks on a future trade deal with the US, and because his friend Adam had said he'd never visited there before. Probably. Trump said that a UK-US trade deal would happen quickly once the UK leaves the EU. And I mean, he's totes a man of his word, right? So that's going to be sorted ASAP, yeah? Yeah, guys? Especially after Trump has said for ages, America first. So I'm pretty sure he's going to think of us here in Blighty before anyone else. Even better news, and I mean that as sarcastically as possible, all talks so far sound like the UK and US might end up with some sort of TTIP-style deal, the sort of deal that many voted to leave the EU to avoid, even though the EU now seems to be rejecting it. Well done, everyone. As part of this deal, Liam Fox has mentioned talk of lifting the UK ban on chlorine-washed poultry so that they can be imported from the US to aid a trade deal. Great, that's what everyone wants. Sovereignty and chickens with a little sticker on saying, this chicken you're about to eat had a shit life till we drowned it in a public swimming pool replete with child's piss and old people's pubes. Chlorine-washed chicken is banned in the EU on health grounds as is a concern that it can increase risk of salmonella as abattoirs use it as a quick disinfectant rather than proper methods. It can also make meat look fresher than it actually is, which is a bit dodgy. Still though, chicken from the US is 21% cheaper than in the UK and that's what everyone wants, right? Cheap foul play. God, he's such a shit fox, he can't even do getting chickens right. There is, of course, even more Brexit chat than that, and this week, as it's the last episode before the summer, I asked politics.co.uk editor and several times guest on this podcast, Ian Dunt, for a very, very quick Brexit update. A quicksit, if you like. You don't like? Oh, sorry. A Brexit update then. Anyway, he agreed, and so we had a very short chat, uh, full of explanations, in order to take you through to September, full of Brexit knowledge. Here is Ian. So, Ian, uh, second week of Brexit negotiations have finished. Does anyone have the remotest clue what's going on? Where on earth are we now? Are we anywhere? Has anything happened? <laughs> okay, so um, basically, no. Uh, you know, what Barney <laughs> said today was, um, he was, he was he's, the funny thing is, he's kind of weirdly British about the whole thing. He's got this kind of like understated calm to the things that he says, which I find quite humorous. So there's a point at his sort of uh, joint press conference with David Davis where he basically says, you know, this would all be much easier if the British had a position on any of these issues. <laughs> sort of thing. You know, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it, if your negotiating partner actually said what they thought about things. But the British team don't really seem to have come to a position. What we're seeing is all the broad brushstroke sort of truisms, the cliche stuff. Sure, they've got that, but they haven't got any actual plan as to how to achieve it. They don't have any detailed positioning on any of these issues. So that's really difficult. However, there was one area that actually made me feel quite optimistic, and that's the this is going to get a bit geeky, unfortunately, but the thing yeah, is that the, the, geek, the geekiness is basically where all of this stuff hinges on. And 
there's a point where Barnier says um, he, he alludes to Norway and says that they have a legal process which dovetails with the European Court of Justice. Now, that it's not quite code, but it's quite revealing, because what it means is on the issue of EU citizens' rights, as it's been so far, the, one of the main differences between the British team and the European team is the Brits say we're not going to have any European Court of Justice jurisdiction over stuff. And the European team say, well, we need an independent body to guarantee the rights of EU citizens in the future, or some future British government can just scrap whatever deal we give them. And that seemed like an insurmountable gap. However, when Barnier starts talking about the Norway model, that's not the European Court of Justice. That's EFTA, the European Free Trade Association Court, which pays, takes account of European Court of Justice rulings, but doesn't slavishly follow them. And that opens up a, a real area where the Brits, as long as they're even remotely pragmatic and remotely reasonable and sort of uh, um, and responsible about the whole thing, would actually say, well, look, fine, we could accept the EFTA court, even though it's, it's not the European Court of Justice, so that's a slight difference there. So despite it looking very bleak, there was that one glimmer of light where you thought, actually, I can see a potential solution emerging there on the issue of EU citizens' rights. And we could be a little bit closer to some of those people who've laid in bed at night worrying about their status and that of their family, actually getting some decent, solid answers as to, as to how things are going to go forward. So do you think that means then, I mean, and, and I guess who knows what the, the government with, with anything at the moment, I feel like a lot of what they said was going to happen hasn't, et cetera, et cetera. But is it hmm. looking like we are most likely going to get a Norway-like deal at this stage? If you were to take what, what we've got at this stage so far... Would it, would it be Norway? I, I still don't. I don't. I mean, like they, they don't seem. I, I would love that to be the case because I think that that's a, that would be a, a pretty tolerable outcome. Um, I don't see enough sort of. Uh, this would mostly be, I think, piggybacking on the EFTA court in order to guarantee rights in this area. It doesn't necessarily mean that we'd go the full way towards Norway. Say, for instance, by staying in the single market and and things like that. That that probably wouldn't happen, but it's possible. So you say like, you know, Philip Hammond. I mean, Philip Hammond's supposed to be the dub. You know, he's supposed to be the softest of the soft Brexiters around the cabinet table. Mm. But when he talks about what he actually envisages, it's pretty mad. I mean, you know, he's going on about a two-year membership of the customs union before we pull out. I mean, that is, to call that soft Brexit is, is you know, to put the bar very, very low indeed. So I still haven't really heard anything from people around the cabinet table that would indicate that they're prepared to go there. I still think that they just think they're going to be eaten alive by their own right-wingers and by the, sort of the hardcore run for Brexit voters if they were to go down that pathway. You hear it from places like the CBI, you know, the business sort of sector. You hear it from trade unionists. You hear it from some Labour members and some Labour MPs, but not the leadership. But when it comes to what's going on at the Cabinet, no one even now is talking about Norway, even though it's obvious how much trouble we're in, because we refuse to pursue that kind of moderate strategy about Brexit. I mean, do you think, sort of, uh, from your point of view of having dealt with, you know, or reported on politicians for quite some time, is this is this just them kind of uh, sticking to their guns rather than being sensible? I mean, it, it sort of feels like they know now, you know, they, they've conceded on that we're going to have to pay a, a divorce bill, as they call it, which it seems to be just, mm. you know, sensible. But all these kind of things that they said they wouldn't do, uh, it sort of it seems to me that it's more just a power play rather than any kind of sensible politics or sensible wish for what they want, you know, for the outcome for the country. Yeah, it seems. Well, I think it's a mix of a couple of things. Um, so the first one is just this really, really sort of weirdly un-British kind of hysterical nationalism that we've had for the last 12, 13 months or so since the vote, really, where it's 
it's not really been a debate. It's not really been a politics debate. It's basically just been a bunch of people shouting, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And they haven't really recognized that there are other countries that we're going to negotiate with. And that, you know, all of international relations is about giving up a bit of control for mutual benefits. And you make the decision as to how much control you're going to give up. You can either be North Korea, you know, and give up absolutely nothing and live in splendid isolation. Or you can go, you know, into the Eurozone and kind of give up really an awful lot of things and supposedly benefit from that. And instead of having that kind of adult debate, they've just basically been like toddlers smearing food over their face and saying, why can't I have all the things? Now, the extent to which politicians are really part of that or whether they've just thought that it's useful for them to ride the wave in the name of their own career is, is, is a big one. And I don't really know how much these guys have just properly gone mad or if they just think that they need to appear a bit mad in order to advance their career. I don't know the answer to that question. But at the moment, they're, they're still behaving in this way. And the real notions of having, again, just pragmatic, reasonable solutions to what are ultimately practical questions still hasn't really borne out. And when you see the way the Europeans talk, it's clear that behind closed negotiating room doors, they don't seem to be much more advanced than they have been in public. It's, it's a really worrying state that we're now in a place where politicians think, oh, the way to win over voters is to act completely mad. <laughs> I feel like that's a, a real low point. Um, and just uh, I, I realised uh, I, I was asking for a quick uh, sum up, but the, all of these questions are very long. But uh, a very quick one is what's uh, the implications of us leaving Eurotom? And uh, I know that's a long question, but if you could summarise it for us, because it's something that I don't really understand i know it was in the article 50 letter uh, that said that we would remove ourselves from Utah, but that seems to cause quite a lot of issues especially amongst backbenchers mm. it's not even clear that they need to do that there's basically two schools of legal advice the first one is that it's it's completely linked to you know the eu and all of that and so we had to say it in the article 50 letter the other one is it's not linked and actually you don't need to leave it the thing is whichever way that went it wasn't a very sensible thing to do because even if there's a legal argument that it is linked you might as well stay in it and fight that and see if you can find a way around it however you know they they did this this was kind of a litmus test by the way for for sort of former remainers in the tory party who were like look okay i'm going to grudgingly go along with this brexit thing but i expect it to be done sensibly some of them, they would often say, look, this is a litmus test because there is no sane argument for why you wouldn't want to be in your, in, in your atom. I mean, it just it just doesn't exist. Like, why on earth does anyone need sovereign control over the handling of nuclear materials? It's just a complete nonsense. But we went ahead, we pulled out. So now that they're saying there's no majority for pulling out, you sort of think, well, it's too late, mate, because you've already done it. You, you sent the letter saying that you were going to do this. And now the clock ticks down unless we can somehow manage to convince them to let us stay in. And potentially the repercussions are quite severe. I mean, there's, there's repercussions really for the way that we look at cancer, for the way we find and treat cancer. But basically all of our handling of nuclear materials comes down to this body. And it's sort of indicative of the flippancy and the irresponsibility with, with, with which these guys have been treating these fairs. But they just signed off on that letter without even really understanding what was in it. They are just lost in this sort of storming river of lunacy. And it seems that even now we're still seeing the full extent of the devastation that they've caused by really not really thinking through the actions and the decisions that they're taking. It's, it's bizarre because as well, I mean, Hinkley Point surfaces in the news every now and then. And you sort of think if yeah. if that's still something that they're considering doing, if we leave Eurotom, how would that work? That wouldn't work at all, would it? It's a nuclear power plant. You no, well, there's people to... talking... 
they're talking about like an extra 20 billion on the bill for Hinkley, basically just because of pulling out of your atom. I mean, the, the money that's being, the, the amount of waste money that's being thrown around when they made the decisions is absolutely huge. But of course, they're not going to be the ones paying it. And they're not really the ones that are being held accountable. And, you know, like at the heart of it, when we, we're talking about sort of, you know, people going mad and all of that kind of stuff. At the heart of this is, I think this is just how politicians behave when there's no press holding them to account. Now, the press in this country loves to go on about how tough they are and, you know, how, how robust and bullish and all of that. But ultimately, on Brexit, they support the government. They've supported Theresa May on absolutely all of this. They haven't thrown any scrutiny at it whatsoever. So suddenly, this is what you get. This is what you get when the press turn into, you know, basically a communications department for number 10. Basically, a minister signing off on things at tremendous cost to the taxpayer, ruining Britain's international relations, putting the quality of life in this country under severe risk and doing it without anyone picking them up on it, apart from, you know, a couple of angry articles on blogs like mine or in The Guardian, which, you know, nobody cares about. So this is basically what happens when you don't have a press that's holding the government to account. And the press has to be blamed for this at least as much as the government does. And do you think, just as a last question, um, I... Uh, you know, Vince Cable said it, and Tony Blair sort of alluded to it that, that Brexit could still fall through. I mean, if, at, when I'm looking at this at the moment, I saw Liam Fox said today that the, who is it that UK could survive if there was no deal? Which isn't a sort of UK can th- yeah. flourish or thrive. It's like <laughs> if we were shipwrecks, you'd be dehydrated and famished, but you wouldn't die immediately. Uh, it's, it's like the bleakest term you could use. But um, you know, is there? Without sort of giving false hope to, to re- the, the, those that are still remainers or whatever, but, but do you think there is a chance this could fall through or is it more likely that... Because I can't imagine the, the global system letting the UK completely collapse. It feels to me like the options would rather be that they'd have to back... You know, the, the government would have to back down from this if nothing yeah, came to fruition. I, I, I still think there's a pretty good chance of stopping this, to be honest. But I, I'm, I'm naturally optimistic, which always surprises people, given that most of my output is saying <laughs> we're fucked. Um, so, I mean, I even thought, you know, during the year before the general election that there was a, there was a small but real chance that this might be stopped, just because of the, the core dynamics and the systems that we're dealing with really restrict the ability of governments to do this stuff. They don't seem to have comprehended the severity of the repercussions or the extent of the complications. And because they haven't, it looked like they were going to come a cropper by virtue of their own inadequacy and their own unwillingness to grapple with the obstacles that they face. Now, that's even more the case. You know, I mean, you look, you look the economy is showing a lot of danger signs and some really quite sort of toxic things. You look at the rise in consumer credit. I mean, it's going up 10% a year. And this is a consumer economy. People are spending on the basis of money that they've borrowed. This is not dissimilar from where we were in 2008. The value of the pound fell. Inflation is rising. Investment is falling. Companies are moving overseas to secure their supply chain or just to be able to keep on selling services. Uh, we're seeing you know, a reduction in immigration, which, despite the nonsense that the press will tell you, is absolutely devastating for our ability to maintain public services, things like social care. Everywhere you look, it looks bad. And there's now about 18 months of this to keep on going. Well, simultaneously, we've got a parliament that is completely just caught up in a status quo where no one can do anything at all. We've got a cabinet that's more interested in fighting itself than trying to do anything for the country. And we've got a British negotiating team who day after day are just going to get hammered and humiliated up on an international stage in Brussels. And it seems to me that that sort of combination of things could easily create a scenario where Brexit has stopped, either unilaterally or more likely to, you know, pressure for there to be a referendum on the final deal, which I think is what we need. 
So, yeah, I think, you know, if, if you're someone who's uncomfortable with Brexit, there is still everything to fight for right now, and it is an eminently winnable battle. Cool, well, that's a nice bit of hope uh, to finish up. <laughs> no one ever says that to me anymore. That's the first time for years that anyone said I've said anything hopeful. <laughs> well, it's a sunny day, and you, you said that there's a glimpse of possibility, which, you know, I feel like that's better than, better than nothing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's true, it's very true. <laughs> Thanks tons to Ian for that, uh, especially quite last minute and just before he went on holiday. Much appreciated. Um, he is on Twitter at Ian Dunt. That's I-A-N-D-U-N-T, obviously. And as well as being editor of politics.co.uk, which is a great site, uh, his book Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now is available from all good and probably bad retailers as well. And he's also a regular contributor on the Romaniacs podcast, which is well worth a listen and a subscribe as well. So do that. <laughs> And that's it for episode 70 of the Partly Political Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. And this show, as I've said before, is now on a break for several weeks and is going to be returning at some point in the autumn, depending on when I recover from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Please do stay subscribed to the show as I may be releasing the odd bit of stand-up on it, uh, if you're a subscriber, a little bit cheeky, and possibly some Edinburgh Fringe recommendations. And if I can find some useful interviewees while I'm up there, I'll definitely do some bonus summer episodes as I'm going to be taking all my equipment with me for the month. Yeah, take that, burglars. You won't be able to break into my flat and make your own podcast where you review different locks or the funniest ways people leave windows open or something. Yeah, tough titties. Anyway, during this break, please, please, please do review the show on iTunes, Stitcher or on posters on trees with pictures of cute pets on so people take a really close look and then feel really cheated that they were conned into looking at the poster based on that picture, but then really happy that a cat or a dog is safe and so ultimately subscribe to the podcast on the basis that at no point during this recording were any pets lost. Little do they know, I've lost five cats just in the past hour. If you're up at the Edinburgh Fringe, please, please, please do come along to my show. It's called Miserably Happy. It's on at 2.30pm every day at the Waverley Bar off the Royal Mile. Uh, and that is from the 5th of August to the 27th of August, but not the 15th or the 19th. Um, and I'm going to be doing various other shows and spots while I'm up there. So if you'd like a list of those as well, do check my website. That's tnndweb.co.uk. And if you sign up to my mailing list, which you can find at the bottom of every page or on the contacts page, um, then there will be a mail out on August the 1st with a whole list of everything I'm doing there at the time. Lastly, whoo, big, big thanks to Acast, as always, for hosting the show and to my brother, The Last Skeptic, for all of the music. I hope you have a wonderful, joy-filled summer and Parpol Bro is going to return in September when, no doubt, Liam Fox will have agreed to sell Wales to North Korea in exchange for some free trade on some copy decks filled lamb. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by the number zero, which is the amount of battles the heroic Vince Cable had to fight to become leader of the Liberal Democrats. Oh, how the ballad shall sing about mighty Vince Cable of Twickenham became Lib Dem leader because no one else ran. Well done, mate. Well done. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.